Part One, Chapters Four through Six of the Voyages of Doctor Doolittle by Hugh Lofting. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four: The Whiff Waff. When at last I could look around me, I found that the hall was indeed simply full of animals. It seemed to me that almost every kind of creature from the countryside must be there—a pigeon, a white rat, an owl, a badger, a jackdaw. There was even a small pig just in from the rainy garden, carefully wiping his feet on the mat while the light from the candle glistened on his wet pink back. The doctor took the candlestick from the duck and turned to me. Look here, he said. You must get those wet clothes off. By the way, what is your name? Tommy Stubbins, I said. Oh, are you the son of Jacob Stubbins, the shoemaker? Yes, I said. Excellent bootmaker, your father," said the doctor. "You see these," and he held up his right foot to show me the enormous boots he was wearing. "Your father made these boots four years ago, and I've been wearing them ever since. Perfectly wonderful boots. Well, now look here, Stubbins, you've got to change those wet things and quick. Wait a moment till I get some more candles lit, and then we'll go upstairs and find some dry clothes." You'll have to wear an old suit of mine till we can get yours dry again by the kitchen fire. So presently, when more candles had been lighted round different parts of the house, we went upstairs. And when we had come into a bedroom, the doctor opened a big wardrobe and took out two suits of old clothes. These we put on. Then we carried our wet ones down to the kitchen and started a fire in the big chimney. The coat of the doctor's, which I was wearing, was so large for me. That I kept treading on my own coat tails while I was helping to fetch the wood up from the cellar, but very soon we had a huge big fire blazing up the chimney, and we hung our wet clothes around on chairs. Now let's cook some supper," said the doctor. "You'll stay and have supper with me, Stubbins, of course." Already I was beginning to be very fond of this funny little man who called me Stubbins instead of Tommy, or little lad. I did so hate to be called little lad. This man seemed to begin right away treating me as though I were a grown-up friend of his, and when he asked me to stop and have supper with him, I felt terribly proud and happy. But I suddenly remembered that I had not told my mother that I would be out late, so very sadly I answered, "Thank you very much. I would like to stay, but I am afraid that my mother will begin to worry and wonder where I am if I don't get back." Oh, but my dear Stubbins," said the doctor, throwing another log of wood on the fire. "Your clothes aren't dry yet. You'll have to wait for them, won't you? By the time they are ready to put on, we will have supper cooked and eaten. Did you see where I put my bag? I think it is still in the hall," I said. "I'll go and see." I found the bag near the front door. It was made of black leather and looked very, very old. One of its latches was broken, and it was tied up round the middle with a piece of string. Thank you," said the doctor when I brought it to him. "Was that bag all the luggage you had for your voyage?" I asked. "Yes," said the doctor as he undid the piece of string. "I don't believe in a lot of baggage. It's such a nuisance. Life's too short to fuss with it, and it isn't really necessary, you know. Where did I put those sausages?" The doctor was feeling about inside the bag. First, he brought out a loaf of new bread. 
Next came a glass jar with a curious metal top to it. He held this up to the light very carefully before he set it down upon the table, and I could see that there was some strange little water creature swimming about inside. At last the doctor brought out a pound of sausages. Now, he said, all we want is a frying pan. We went into the scullery, and there we found some pots and pans hanging against the wall. The doctor took down the frying pan. It was quite rusty on the inside. Dear me, just look at that, said he. That's the worst of being away so long. The animals are very good and keep the house wonderfully clean as far as they can. Dab-Dab is a perfect marvel as a housekeeper. But some things, of course, they can't manage. Never mind, we'll soon clean it up. You'll find some silver sand down there, under the sink, Stubbins. Just hand it up to me, will you? In a few moments we had the pan all shiny and bright, and the sausages were put over the kitchen fire, and a beautiful frying smell went all through the house. While the doctor was busy at the cooking, I went and took another look at the funny little creature swimming about in the glass jar. What is this animal? I asked. Oh, that, said the doctor, turning round. That's a whiff-waff. Its full name is Hippocampus pipitopitus, but the natives just call it a whiff-waff, on account of the way it waves its tail, swimming, I imagine. That's what I went on this last voyage for, to get that. You see, I'm very busy just now trying to learn the language of the shellfish. They have languages of that, I feel sure. I can talk a little shark language and porpoise dialect myself, but what I particularly want to learn now is shellfish. Why? I asked. Well, you see, some of the shellfish are the oldest kind of animals in the world that we know of. We find their shells in the rocks, turned to stone, thousands of years old. So I feel quite sure that if I could only get to talk their language, I should be able to learn a whole lot about what the world was like ages and ages and ages ago, you see. But couldn't some of the other animals tell you as well? I don't think so, said the doctor, prodding the sausages with a fork. To be sure, the monkeys I knew in Africa some time ago were very helpful in telling me about bygone days, but they only went back a thousand years or so. No, I am certain that the oldest history in the world is to be had from the shellfish, and from them only. You see, most of the other animals that were alive in those very ancient times have now become extinct. Have you learned any shellfish language yet? I asked. No, I've only just begun. I wanted this particular kind of a pipefish because he is half a shellfish and half an ordinary fish. I went all the way to the eastern Mediterranean after him, but I'm very much afraid he isn't going to be a great deal of help to me. To tell you the truth, I'm rather disappointed in his appearance. He doesn't look very intelligent, does he? No, he doesn't. I agreed. Ah, said the doctor. The sausages are done to a turn. Come along, hold your plate near, and let me give you some. Then we sat down at the kitchen table and started a hearty meal. It was a wonderful kitchen, that. I had many meals there afterwards, and I found it a better place to eat in than the grandest dining room in the world. It was so cozy and homelike and warm. It was so handy for the food, too. You took it right off the fire, hot, and put it on the table and ate it. And you could watch your toast toasting at the fender, and see it didn't burn while you drank your soup. And if you had forgotten to put the salt on the table, you didn't have to get up and go into another room to fetch it. You just reached round and took the big wooden box off the dresser behind you. 
Then the fireplace, the biggest fireplace you ever saw, was like a room in itself. You could get right inside it, even when the logs were burning, and sit on the wide seats either side and roast chestnuts after the meal was over, or listen to the kettle singing, or tell stories, or look at picture books by the light of the fire. It was a marvelous kitchen. It was like the doctor, comfortable, sensible, friendly, and solid. While we were gobbling away, the door suddenly opened, and in marched the duck, Dab-Dab, and the dog, Jip, dragging sheets and pillowcases behind them over the clean tiled floor. The doctor, seeing how surprised I was, explained. They're just going to air the bedding for me in front of the fire. Dab-Dab is a perfect treasurer of a housekeeper. She never forgets anything. I had a sister once who used to keep house for me. Poor dear Sarah, I wonder how she's getting on. I haven't seen her in many years. But she wasn't nearly as good as Dab-Dab. Have another sausage. The doctor turned and said a few words to the dog and duck in some strange talk and signs. They seemed to understand him perfectly. Can you talk in squirrel language? I asked. Oh, yes, that's quite an easy language, said the doctor. You could learn that yourself without a great deal of trouble. But why do you ask? Because I have a sick squirrel at home, I said. I took it away from a hawk, but two of its legs are badly hurt, and I wanted very much to have you see it, if you would. Shall I bring it tomorrow? Well, if its leg is badly broken, I think I'd better see it tonight. It may be too late to do much, but I'll come home with you and take a look at it. So presently we felt the clothes by the fire, and mine were found to be quite dry. I took them upstairs to the bedroom and changed, and when I came down the doctor was already waiting for me with his little black bag full of medicines and bandages. Come along, he said. The rain has stopped now. Outside it had grown bright again, and the evening sky was all red with the setting sun, and thrushes were singing in the garden as we opened the gate to go down to the road. Chapter 5. Polynesia I think your house is the most interesting house I was ever in, I said as we set off in the direction of the town. May I come and see you again, tomorrow? Certainly, said the doctor. Come any day you like. Tomorrow I'll show you the garden, and my private zoo. Oh, have you a zoo? I asked. Yes, said he. The larger animals are too big for the house, so I keep them in a zoo, in the garden. It is not a very big collection, but it is interesting in its way. It must be splendid, I said, to be able to talk all the languages of the different animals. Do you think I could ever learn to do it? Oh, surely, said the doctor. With practice. You have to be very patient, you know. You really ought to have Polynesia statue. It was she who gave me my first lessons. Who is Polynesia? I asked. Polynesia was a West African parrot I had. She isn't with me any more now, said the doctor sadly. Why? Is she dead? Oh, no, said the doctor. She is still living, I hope. But when we reached Africa, she seemed so glad to get back to her own country. She wept for joy. And when the time came for me to come back here, I had not the heart to take her away from that sunny land. Although, it is true, she did offer to come. I left her in Africa. Ah, well, I have missed her terribly. She wept again when we left. 
but I think I did the right thing. She was one of the best friends I ever had. It was she who first gave me the idea of learning the animal languages and becoming an animal doctor. I often wonder if she remained happy in Africa and whether I shall ever see her funny, old, solemn face again. Good old Polynesia, a most extraordinary bird. Well, well. Just at that moment, we heard the noise of someone running behind us. And turning round, we saw Jip the dog rushing down the road after us as fast as his legs could bring him. He seemed very excited about something, and as soon as he came up to us, he started barking and whining to the doctor in a peculiar way. Then the doctor, too, seemed to get all worked up and began talking and making queer signs to the dog. At length he turned to me, his face shining with happiness. Polynesia has come back, he cried. Imagine it. Jip says she just arrived at the house. My, and it's five years since I saw her. Excuse me a minute. He turned as if to go back home, but the parrot Polynesia was already flying towards us. The doctor clapped his hands like a child getting a new toy, while the swarm of sparrows in the roadway fluttered, gossiping, up on the fences, highly scandalized to see a grey and scarlet parrot skimming down an English lane. On she came straight on to the doctor's shoulder, where she immediately began talking a steady stream in a language I could not understand. She seemed to have a terrible lot to say, and very soon the doctor had forgotten all about me and my squirrel and Jip and everything else, till at length the bird clearly asked him something about me. Oh, excuse me, Stubbins, said the doctor. I was so interested listening to my old friend here. We must get on and see this squirrel of yours. Polynesia, this is Thomas Stubbins. The parrot on doctor's shoulder nodded gravely towards me, and then, to my great surprise, said quite plainly in English, How do you do? I remember the night you were born. It was a terribly cold winter. You were a very ugly baby. Stubbins is anxious to learn animal language, said the doctor. I was just telling him about you and the lessons you gave me when Jip ran up and told us you had arrived. Well, said the parrot, turning to me, I may have started the doctor learning, but I never could have done even that if he hadn't first taught me to understand what I was saying when I spoke English. You see, many parrots can talk like a person, but very few of them understand what they are saying. They just say it because, well, because they fancy it's smart or because they know they will get crackers given to them. By this time we had turned and were going towards my home with Jip, running in front and Polynesia still perched on the doctor's shoulder. The bird chattered incessantly, mostly about Africa, but now she spoke in English out of politeness to me. How is Prince Bumpo getting on? asked the doctor. Oh, I'm glad you asked me, said Polynesia. I almost forgot to tell you. What do you think? Bumpo is in England. In England? You don't say, cried the doctor. What on earth is he doing here? His father, the king, sent him here to a place called, uh, Bulford, I think it was, to study lessons. Bulford, Bulford, muttered the doctor. I never heard of the place. Oh, you mean Oxford. Yes, that's the place, Oxford, said Polynesia. I knew it had cattle in it somewhere. Oxford, that's the place he's gone to. Well, well, murmured the doctor. Fancy Bumpo studying at Oxford. Well, well. 
There were great doings in Jolly Ginky when he left. He was scared to death to come. He was the first man from that country to go abroad. He thought he was going to be eaten by white cannibals or something. You know what those niggers are, that ignorant well. But his father made him come. He said that all the black kings were sending their sons to Oxford now. It was the fashion, and he would have to go. Bumpo wanted to bring his six wives with him, but the king wouldn't let him do that either. Poor Bumpo went off in tears, and everybody in the palace was crying too. You never heard such a hullabaloo. Do you know if he ever went back in search of the Sleeping Beauty? Asked the doctor. Oh, yes, said Polynesia. The day after you left, and a good thing for him he did. The king got to know about his helping you to escape, and he was dreadfully wild about it. And the Sleeping Beauty, did he ever find her? Well, he brought back something which he said was the Sleeping Beauty. Myself, I think it was an albino niggeress. She had red hair and the biggest feet you ever saw. But Bumpo was no end pleased with her, and finally married her amid great rejoicings. The feastings lasted seven days. She became his chief wife, and is now known out there as the Crown Princess Bumpa. You accent the last syllable. And tell me, did he remain white? Only for about three months, said the parrot. After that, his face slowly returned to its natural colour. It was just as well. He was so conspicuous in his bathing suit the way he was, with his face white and the rest of him black. And how is Chi-Chi getting on? Chi-Chi, added the doctor in explanation to me, was a pet monkey I had years ago. I left him to in Africa when I came away. Well, said Polynesia, frowning. Chi-Chi is not entirely happy. I saw a good deal of him the last few years. He got dreadfully homesick for you and the house and the garden. It's funny, but I was just the same way myself. You remember how crazy I was to get back to the dear old land? And Africa is a wonderful country. I don't care what anybody says. Well, I thought I was going to have a perfectly grand time. But somehow, I don't know. After a few weeks, it seemed to get tiresome. I just couldn't seem to settle down. Well, to make a long story short, one night I made up my mind that I'd come back here and find you. So I hunted up old Chi-Chi and told him about it. He said he didn't blame me a bit, felt exactly the same way himself. Africa was so deadly quiet after the life we had led with you. He missed the stories you used to tell us out of your animal books and the chats we used to have sitting round the kitchen fire on winter nights. The animals out there were very nice to us and all that, but somehow the dear, kind creatures seemed a bit stupid. Chi-Chi said he had noticed it too, but I suppose it wasn't they who had changed. It was we who were different. When I left, poor old Chi-Chi broke down and cried. He said he felt as though his only friend were leaving him. Though, as you know, he has simply millions of relatives there. He said it didn't seem fair that I should have wings to fly over here any time I liked, and him with no way to follow me. But mark my words, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if he found a way to come, someday. He's a smart lad, is Chi-Chi. At this point we arrived at my home. My father's shop was closed and the shutters were up, but my mother was standing at the door looking down the street. Good evening, Mrs. Stubbins, said the doctor. It is my fault your son is so late. I made him stay to supper while his clothes were drying. He was soaked to the skin, and so was I. 
We ran into one another in the storm, and I insisted on his coming into my house for shelter. I was beginning to get worried about him, said my mother. I am thankful to you, sir, for looking after him so well and bringing him home. Don't mention it, don't mention it, said the doctor. We have had a very interesting chat. Who might it be that I have the honour of addressing? Asked my mother, staring at the grey parrot perched on the doctor's shoulder. Oh, I'm John Doolittle. I dare say your husband will remember me. He made me some very excellent boots about four years ago. They really are splendid. Added the doctor, gazing down at his feet with great satisfaction. The doctor has come to cure my squirrel, mother, said I. He knows all about animals. Oh, no, said the doctor. Not all, Stubbins. Not all about them, by any means. It is very kind of you to come so far to look after his pet, said my mother. Tom is always bringing home strange creatures from the woods and the fields. Is he? said the doctor. Perhaps he will grow up to be a naturalist some day. Who knows? Won't you come in? asked my mother. The place is a little untidy because I haven't finished the spring cleaning yet, but there's a nice fire burning in the parlour. Thank you, said the doctor. What a charming home you have. And after wiping his enormous boots very, very carefully on the mat, the great man passed into the house. Chapter 6 The Wounded Squirrel Inside we found my father busy practicing on the flute beside the fire. This he always did every evening after his work was over. The doctor immediately began talking to him about flutes and piccolos and bassoons, and presently my father said, Perhaps you perform upon the flute yourself, sir. Won't you play us a tune? Well, said the doctor, It is a long time since I touched the instrument, but I would like to try. May I? Then the doctor took the flute from my father and played and played and played. It was wonderful. My mother and father sat as still as statues, staring up at the ceiling as though they were in church. And even I, who didn't bother much about music except on the mouth organ, even I felt all sad and cold and creepy and wished I had been a better boy. Oh, I think that was just beautiful, sighed my mother when at length the doctor stopped. You are a great musician, sir, said my father. A very great musician. Won't you please play us something else? Why, certainly, said the doctor. Oh, but look here, I've forgotten all about the squirrel. I'll show him to you, I said. He's upstairs in my room. So I led the doctor to my bedroom at the top of the house and showed him the squirrel in the packing case filled with straw. The animal, who had always seemed very much afraid of me, though I had tried hard to make him feel at home, sat up at once when the doctor came into the room and started to chatter. The doctor chattered back in the same way, and the squirrel, when he was lifted up to have his leg examined, appeared to be rather pleased than frightened. I held a candle while the doctor tied the leg up in what he called splints, which he made out of matchsticks with his penknife. I think you will find that his leg will get better now in a very short time, the doctor said, closing up his bag. Don't let him run about for at least two weeks yet, but keep him in the open air and cover him up with dry leaves if the nights get cool. He tells me he is rather lonely here all by himself and is wondering how his wife and children are getting on. 
I have assured him you are a man to be trusted, and I will send a squirrel who lives in my garden to find out how his family are and to bring him news of them. He must be kept cheerful at all costs. Squirrels are naturally a very cheerful, active race. It is very hard for them to lie still doing nothing. But you needn't worry about him. He will be all right. Then we went back again to the parlor, and my mother and father kept him playing the flute till after ten o'clock. Although my parents both liked the doctor tremendously from the first moment that they saw him, and they were very proud to have him come and play to us, for we were really terribly poor, they did not realize then what a truly great man he was one day to become. Of course now, when almost everybody in the whole world has heard about Dr. Doolittle and his books, if you were to go to that little house in Puddleby, where my father had his cobbler shop, you would see set in the wall over the old-fashioned door a stone with writing on it which says, John Doolittle. The famous naturalist played the flute in this house in the year 1839. I often look back upon that night long, long ago, and if I close my eyes and think hard, I can see that parlor just as it was then. A funny little man in coat-tails, with a round, kind face, playing away on the flute in front of the fire, my mother on one side of him and my father on the other, holding their breath and listening with their eyes shut myself with Jip squatting on the carpet at his feet, staring into the coals, and Polynesia perched on the mantelpiece beside his shabby high hat, gravely swinging her head from side to side in time to the music. I see it all, just as though it were before me now. And then I remember how, after we had seen the doctor out at the front door, we all came back into the parlor and talked about him till it was still later. And even after I did go to bed, I had never stayed up so late in my life before, I dreamed about him, and a band of strange clever animals that played flutes and fiddles and drums the whole night through. End of Part 1, Chapter 6